Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the book of Proverbs, chapter 28, and verses 13 and 14. Proverbs 28, 13, and 14. Let's listen now to the Word of God as He speaks to us, His people, beginning in verse 13. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Happy is the man who is always reverent, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to our passage from Proverbs chapter 28, and let's focus our attention especially upon verse 13. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. The church, as we know from the New Testament, is the body of Christ. And that has implications. The body is connected. The different parts of the body, the organs of the body, the systems that God has designed and created and sustained within our bodies are all interconnected. And that's the picture that we have, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where you have references to people being baptized into one body. That is, when people are received into church membership, either when they come of age with a profession of faith, they're, they're baptized into one body as an adult professor of faith, or their children who are at that time or whenever they're born baptized into the body of Christ. They become members. They become parts, organs of the body. And so when we perform a baptism, we typically preach on baptism. And we preach on the significance of baptism. I think the last several times, we've had a lot of those uh, baptismal services, but, but it, we've been emphasizing the duty of every baptized person receiving benefit from observing the baptism of another person. That when we're observing somebody else being baptized, as our larger catechism says, we seek to improve our baptism. We seek to be made aware of our own duties and responsibilities and privileges such that the baptism of another person impacts the whole church. We stand up and we take vows to receive this person or that person into the fellowship of the body of Christ. And so baptism garners much of our focus and attention throughout the entire service in which the baptism is performed. And there's good reason for that. We could say the same of the Lord's Supper. It's not just about the new person who's just professed faith and is coming to the table for the first time, though that might be significant on an individual level. We might 
celebrate that, congratulate, and, and uh, rejoice over that, but it's really about the whole body of Christ. And when we celebrate communion, we preach about it, we think about it. Uh, we have psalms that are connected to that particular theme, and rightly so. When the ordinances of the church take place, there needs to ordinarily be a unity. If we were going to have a fast day, and we had a service on that fast day, don't be surprised if you'd hear a sermon about fasting. Well, the same is true with respect to church discipline. Church discipline is something that occurs in the body of Christ among the interconnected members of that body, and it is significant for every single person within the church. We're told that in 1 Timothy 5, verse 20, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest may also fear. There's a sense here in which Though it may be unpleasant, though it may seem awkward, the reality is that when someone is disciplined, there needs to be a public declaration of that, and the Bible speaks of the impact that that is to have on the rest. In other words, it has an impact on every single other member of the body of Jesus Christ in the church. We, as we are participating in a service of worship where there may be discipline announced, have a duty to pay close attention, just like at a baptism, and to think about and examine our own lives. How does this affect me? How might I be in need of repentance myself? How might there be seeds of sin that haven't come to full fruition in my life? There's not been discipline, but maybe I need to pull out some weeds in my life Maybe I need to do my due diligence in examining myself and repenting of my own sin. That's why the the Bible requires that. Those who are sinning, that is those who have sinned and continue to sin and won't acknowledge and confess and forsake their sin, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. So there is a proper response. In fact, in the book of Acts, we're told that when judgments of this kind took place, though they be, in some sense, extraordinary judgments, there was an impact upon everyone. So, for instance, in Acts chapter 5, we have Ananias and Sapphira. They lie to the Holy Ghost. They're held accountable. God strikes them dead. It's not church discipline, but in a way you can see the chastening hand of God as a father upon His people. And He brings that judgment upon them, and they're both carried out. And then we're told, after their burial, verse 11 of chapter 5 of the book of Acts, so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And we're told, verse 13, that none of the rest dared join them. So somebody... You know, showed up and realized, wow, God's judgment, discipline is taking place, His chastening hand, and they were frightened and they didn't want to join the church. But, notice this actually had a good impact. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. 
So you can see here there was a hesitancy, but maybe an appropriate fear of God and of the implications of joining the church. Okay, there's accountability here. And, and eventually they took it so seriously that they esteemed the church highly and eventually came to faith and were added to the church. It produced something of a revival on, on a certain scale. So church discipline is something that involves the entire church, and it's something that though it is unpleasant, uh, even as a father disciplines his children, he doesn't take pleasure in that. Lamentation says that the Lord does not willingly afflict the children of men, thinking especially there of his own people there in Jerusalem. He, he didn't bring the captivity upon them willingly as if this was his intrinsic desire, but it was a means to an end of accomplishing his purpose to get them back on track. So it's not something pleasant, but it does involve all of us, and we all have a part to play in responding to it. Uh, and certainly, there's more that could be said if we were dealing with an excommunication, more that could be said about the way in which God's people show solidarity with the discipline and regard it as being bound on earth and bound in heaven and, and help to uh, make an impact by, by for instance, not uh, not eating with such a person. So there, there's quite a bit involved that we're not going to deal with this morning. Um, but I do want to make you aware that after the doxology, I will be reading a suspension of one of our members. And this is something that we need to take very seriously. This sermon is not intended to be heavy-handed. This is a sermon for all of us. This is a sermon very similarly if we had somebody being baptized and the sermon was about every baptized person being impacted by that baptism. That's the purpose today. What foolishness it would be for me to preach a sermon about some other topic and then I drop the discipline after the doxology. Probably many people wouldn't even remember what the sermon was about. So we're going to go with God's providence here and we're going to wrestle with this text as it applies to all of us. Wisdom for all of us. And in that, with that said, we turn to Proverbs 28, verse 13. And it's a warning to all of us. He who covers his sins will not prosper. We know that by nature, we all as children of Adam and Eve, our first parents who when they sinned sought to cover themselves, with fig leaves and hide in the bushes, we know this is our natural tendency, every single one of us. Uh, all of us want to appear a certain way on the outside. We want to look good on the outside. We want to cover our failures and our flaws. We have a tendency toward this very hypocrisy. By nature, we want to cover it up. And we need to address this because it applies to every one of us. Yes, there's a, there's a case of discipline before us, but let's face it, uh, and I know for myself I can say, whenever I have dealt with church discipline as a, as a member in a congregation or as an elder on the session, um, I always try to picture myself in that position and examine myself, and, and, and every time I do that, I realize that uh, there are things in my life that need to change or I will be headed off the cliff. And so, this is a text that applies to every single one of us. Now, it mentions sins. He who covers his sins. What is sin? 
well, we could give the catechism definition, but 1 John tells us that sin is lawlessness. It's a violation of God's law. Children, many of you are familiar with the Ten Commandments. And we could go through the Ten Commandments and how we have a duty to worship and honor God and God alone. How we have a duty to honor and obey our parents' authority. We have the first table of the law, the second table of the law. Our duty toward God, our duty toward others, toward our neighbor, even toward our enemies. And sin is any want or lack of conformity to those commandments that God has revealed. To the extent that we don't measure up to what God has created us to do and to be and to think and to speak and, and, and all of these things, we have sinned. We've missed the mark. We've fallen short of the glory of God and we are guilty in our sin. Sin is lawlessness. It's a violation of God's commandments, a violation of His moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments and Jesus summarizes it again with love God and love your neighbor. In our text, however, we're not confronted with the idea of sin. Sin, in the singular, brings to our minds that which is more general or abstract. We can think of the general category of sin. And we can say, well, I'm a sinner by nature. I have original sin. I have this sinfulness that I've inherited from Adam and Eve, or from, well, especially from Adam, but it's been passed down through natural generation, and so my heart by nature is desperately wicked, and even as a believer, I have that remaining sin, that fleshly influence and desire in my life that I need to daily put to death. And we can think of total depravity, and we can think of human sinfulness at that level. We can think of actual sin, where I do this, and I do that, and, and, and I'm violating God's law, or where God's law tells me to do this and that, and I don't do it, a sin of omission. We can think of all these general categories of sin, but our text is not dealing with general abstract categories of sin. It's dealing with sins. In particular, sins in the concrete, sins that are specific, specific lusts, if you will, specific transgressions or offenses, specific instances of not fulfilling our biblical duties according to God's law. It's particular, it's concrete, it's specific. And uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15, sections 5 and 6, gives us a, a helpful common sense reminder here with respect to dealing with sins in particular. We're told, chapter 15, section 5 of the Confession, men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance. In other words, saying, I'm a sinner by nature, I have these lusts that war against the soul, and in general, I've fallen short of the glory of God, you know, affirming one of the five spiritual laws or something like that. Uh, men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. 
It is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. There's more in that section that we may look at later in the sermon about confession of sin, but you can see that we need to be concerned about specific, particular instances of sin in our lives. It's not enough for me uh, to say in general, I'm a sinner. And I don't want to draw the attention to myself here, but I'll give an example. Um, We had a baseball tournament this week, and... uh, there was a, an instance where the opposing manager was coming out on the field to complain to the umpire about something, and I didn't particularly think that uh, he should be out on the field at that particular time, and uh, I mentioned that to him in a, in a very snippy and, and rude way, and I had to apologize. It wouldn't be enough for me to say, I'm a sinner. I'm totally depraved by nature. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I fall short of the glory of God. I had to personally contact him and ask his forgiveness of that particular sin. And that is a pattern in the life of a true Christian that when we're convicted of something we've said that is rude or that is inappropriate, something we've done that's sinful in whatever way, we're convicted or we're confronted. And then we we wrestle, we pray, we recognize, okay, I've sinned, then we go, we confess it, we repent of it, we deal with that. In particular, you shall call his name Jesus, the angel said, because he shall save his people from their sins. Not just sin. It's true, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but he's the one who takes away the sins of His people. Particular, concrete, specific sins. He takes away the guilt when we confess specific sins. And He takes away the power of sin when we rely upon Him by faith to give us victory over specific sins. And in Matthew 18, we're told that both informal and formal levels of discipline in the church center around sins in particular not just I acknowledge I'm totally depraved by nature God saved me from my sin and I have sin I've fallen short of the glory of God no particular sins Matthew 18 15 moreover if your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone if he hears you you have gained your brother But if he will not hear, take with you two or more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. With respect to what? A specific sin, a specific fault. And on that passage goes. We don't need to focus on on all of it. But, But you see, it all gets started with this idea of sins. And this is part and parcel of the gospel ministry. And of overseeing and shepherding the flock as an elder as well. Uh, Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 through 4. Listen to what the Lord says to Isaiah the prophet. He says, cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. 
Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Now it's describing their outward veneer, what they appear to be prioritizing, what they say they think about God and His ordinances. But then we find that they're complaining against God and eventually he has to lift up his voice like a trumpet and confront them despite their religiosity for exploiting their laborers, for striving and debating, striking with the fist of wickedness, and so on and so forth. Even uh, later on in the chapter, violating the Sabbath day. So this is the duty of the church to lift up its voice like a trumpet and declare to the people of God not only their transgression in general, but their sins in particular. It's not pleasant. It's not something in itself that's enjoyable. Uh, In the same way that God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, He commands the sacrifice, but He'd rather that we were merciful and obedient in the first place, and then we don't need to offer some of those extra sacrifices. In the same way, uh, the church, the leadership of the church, we don't enjoy calling out personal sins. We would prefer those sins weren't there, but we have to do it. And, and, and the same is true in our own lives uh, when we have to confront our own sin. But it is a duty. It's interesting, in Luke chapter 3, we have John the Baptist lifting up his voice like a trumpet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he's calling people to repentance for their particular sins. And we find in verse 3 of that chapter, he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Repent of specific sins and have remission of specific sins. And so he lifts up his voice and he administers this baptism of repentance. And then you go further on, verse 7, then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits. Again, it's not just general, it's specific. Specific fruits of specific repentance in response to specific sins. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, he says, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Notice the response of the people. Verse 10, so the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? He answered and said to them. Now, at this point, you're thinking, well, he's just preached a hellfire and brimstone sermon about God's wrath consuming the wicked. And you're expecting that the people that he's confronting with this hellfire and brimstone repentance sermon are atheists, uh, sexually immoral, thieves, uh, criminals of of one kind or another. And so you're expecting, you know, what shall we do then? And, And he's going to say something in response to those types of sins. But that's not what he says. The people that he's confronting as going to hell 
are not necessarily guilty of those kinds of sins. They're guilty of these kinds of sins. He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Think about this. He's saying repent or you're going to hell. And they say, what do we need to repent of? And he says, you're selfish and greedy. You don't share with people. The Westminster Confession, chapter 15, section 4, says, As there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. That is not worldly common sense wisdom, right? The world thinks, well, there are certain sins that are not a big deal. It's, it's just, you know, okay, somebody's selfish. They don't share. They don't give to people in need. They don't help others. They don't fulfill their biblical duties toward providing for their family and things like this. Well, that's just a small thing, but then there are these homosexuals marching through the streets, right? And, and, and even if those people repented, they'd probably not be saved anyway. Uh, those people, you know, they, the person got a gender change surgery, and well, there's no hope at this point. Um, but, but the Bible is different. Our, our confessional standards in explaining the Bible, and it gives a numerous proof text, but, but our understanding of the Bible from a confessional standpoint is totally different. No sin is so small that you can enter heaven in, with an impenitent heart concerning that sin. Now, there may be hidden sins in your life. You're just not aware of them. That's one thing. But when a sin's brought to your attention and you're aware of it and you simply refuse to repent, it doesn't matter what sin it is. You will go to hell. It doesn't matter if you have two tunics and you know you should give that tunic to somebody else and you refuse because you don't want to give the other tunic to that person. Now, you can say that's ridiculous, but understand you're saying the Bible's ridiculous and maybe that's where you want to go with your life. I wouldn't recommend it, but assuming you're not wanting to say the Bible is ridiculous and assuming you're not wanting to throw the confession of faith in the circular file, then you need to recognize that sin is a big deal even if it's not a quote-unquote big sin. According to John the Baptist, your tree will be cut down and thrown into the fire if you're a selfish, greedy person that doesn't help people in need, especially people that God's commanded you to help and provide for their needs. Verse 12, Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. In other words, don't be dishonest. Don't be dishonest for the purpose of gain. If somebody is dishonest for the purpose of gain, okay, and they don't repent of that, and they don't bring forth the fruits of honest hard work, if they're deceptive for the purpose of gain, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. John is saying you're going to be cut down and cast into the fire. Those are hard words. That's why John was beheaded. That's why when this type of message is proclaimed, um, not everybody enjoys the sound of the trumpet, uh, and, and myself included by nature, right? But we need to hear this. Verse 14, likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. This is powerful stuff. He's, he doesn't even mention that they're 
killing anyone, that they're beating anyone, that they're suffocating anyone or whatever, some kind of police brutality. He doesn't say anything like that. He says, if you don't stop intimidating people, you are headed for hell. If you don't stop intimidating other people, you will be cut down and cast into the fire. If you don't stop making false accusations against people, you will be cut down and cast into the fire. And if you're not content with your wages, you will be cut down and cast into the fire. Think about that last one. Contentment with our wages. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Are we constantly complaining? Children, this may apply even to you. You may not have wages, but are you content? Are you happy with what God has given you? Are you content with the food that your mother puts on the table? Are you content with the life that God has given you as your father provides for your needs? We all need to examine ourselves because the covetous will not inherit the kingdom of God. If we're not content with our wages, if we're always, again, it's not wrong to expand our outward estate, but if we're obsessed with that, if money is the thing and we need to get more and we're not content to just have what we need, uh, and in most cases, we're not trying to get that second tunic to give it to somebody else. But the point is, Uh, we need to realize this is a damnable sin. Any sin is damnable, according to the Bible. If we know about it and we refuse to repent, that should cause us to take things very, very seriously. Sins in particular. Now our text goes on to speak of covering sins. Covering sins. And the idea here is concealing sins hiding sins, keeping sins a secret. We sang about that in Psalm 10 to the point where people are not just hiding their sins from other people, they think they can hide it from God Himself. Now in the Bible, covering sins is not always a bad thing. Love covers a multitude of sins. We know that elsewhere from the Proverbs and Peter in one of his epistles reinforces that point. Love covers a multitude of sins. When Noah's two righteous sons noticed that he had become drunken and unclothed in his tent, they didn't sit around gossiping about it like, uh, like Ham and so on and so forth, but they covered that offense in love. So th- there is something where we shouldn't be quick to the trigger to be accusatory and critical and gossipy, and we, we, should, we should try to protect other people's good name where that is a reasonable thing to do. And biblical love does cover a multitude of sins. We don't want to go go around trying to expose every single person's weaknesses and flaws and faults, whether it be people in our family or people in the church or in the workplace. Uh, Love covers a multitude of sins. So we want to be gracious to other people. We'll deal with this when we continue in 1 Corinthians 13 uh, with the statement that Love does not impute iniquity, or love thinks no evil. There's something there for us. So we understand there's a sense of covering sins that can be good. Uh, We know that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ has covered our sins through His precious blood. And so when we think of covering sins, we might 
Think of that. Psalm 32, verse 1, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David goes on in that psalm to say that for a while he kept silent and refused to confess his sin, but verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So you see how that works. When we get to the point where we are willing to confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us, to cover our sins with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And when David was willing to get to the point where he would no longer hide and cover his sins, and he would confess them instead, he experienced that pardoning grace and mercy in his life and in his conscience. So, yes, biblical love covers a multitude of sins. Yes, the blood of Christ covers the sins of all who repent and confess and forsake sin and exercise saving faith in the gospel. But by nature, we as natural men and women do not want to do that. We do not want to come clean and confess our sins. Um, I could have confessed to that coach right after the game, but I didn't. I had to wait till later because I didn't want to at first. Uh, We're all like that. We want to cover it. We want to reason it out in our minds to find some excuse as to why what we did is somehow allowable or justifiable, and so we want to keep it to ourselves. We don't want to bear that sin publicly or confess it to the person we sinned against. We, We want to protect our image, just like Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes behind their fig leaves and so on and so forth. Uh, Just like David, who for a period of time, about nine months long, he refused to come clean and confess his sin. We're told that by nature, we hate the light. We don't want to be exposed by the light of God's Word with respect to our sins. That's true by nature. It's true in our sinful flesh as believers. John 3 verse 19, this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now, by nature, we actually want the light because, because we want to strut our, our stuff. We want to show everybody how amazing we are. But when we come to grips with our sin and our evil, and there's some sense of embarrassment, then we love the darkness. Now, we live in a society where things have gotten so bad that um, I'm not sure people actually love the darkness in some sense as much as they used to. They actually want to get out in the light and flaunt their wickedness. So that's an issue to, to, to deal with in itself. Uh, but I think even those people would understand the tendency, even in their own lives, to want to cover certain things that they think will make them look bad in the eyes of others. We love the darkness in our sinful, fleshly selves. We love the darkness rather than the light. Jesus goes on, verse 20, for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. So by nature, and when we're backsliding as believers, we don't want to come to the light. And so much more could be said about that, but our text is telling us 
that there are those who cover their sins and we're told they won't prosper. They won't prosper. What does that mean? Is that speaking generally that they're not going to have outward prosperity in terms of their income and lifestyle? I, I don't think that's the emphasis here. I think actually what it's saying is that they're not going to succeed. That's another way to translate that. That he who covers his sins will not succeed. Succeed in what? Succeed in covering his sins. That's the idea here. It circles back to the beginning, the first thought that came into view at the beginning of the verse. He who covers his sins will not prosper in covering his sins. He will not succeed in concealing those sins. Now, when I was younger, my parents, uh, thank the Lord, taught me various uh, Bible verses, and, or I would get to recite those Bible verses, and there was a Bible verse for every letter of the alphabet. The first one for A, I'm not, I'm not sure how far I could get, but A uh, was uh, all we like sheep have gone astray. B was be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, verse 33. And that's an exhortation for all of us. Be sure your sin will find you out. God has a way of shining the light, especially upon His children. So if you're a believer, expect it will doubly be the case that God is going to expose things because He loves you too much to let that cancer in your life grow without being detected. But also, if you're in the life of the church and your life and lifestyle impacts others around you, even if you're unconverted, your lifestyle impacts other people in the church whom He loves with an everlasting love. If that's the case, expect that often God will expose those types of sins either. Be sure your sin will find you out. Jesus makes reference to this in Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. We're told in the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now listen to what he says. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Be sure your sin will find you out. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear and inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Now, that's true in this life to some extent, but some of these things are just waiting to be unveiled when the books are opened at the last day at the great white throne. Paul points this out in 1 Timothy 5.24, Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. So the church is not always able to identify and deal with all kinds of scandalous sins in the life of the church. Uh, but some are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. So eventually, these things will be exposed. He who covers his sins will not succeed in covering them. 
And if that's the case, my friends, then we all need mercy. That's why we need a gospel. That's why we need a Savior to save His people from their sins. We all need mercy. And that's exactly what our text offers to us. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. This is not the word mercy that sometimes, uh, the word mercy sometimes used to translate the word that refers to God's covenant love, chesed, his tender mercy, his covenant love. That's not the instance here. In this particular instance, the word mercy is, is a word that really brings to mind not the general concept of God's covenant love, but in particular, it brings to our minds the idea of mercy as we know it, forgiveness, those who deserve judgment being forgiven. God shows mercy to the ill-deserving, loving kindness tender affection for those who are sinful and miserable. And so God shows them mercy. He forgives their sins. He takes the consequences of their sins and works it together for their good. And He conforms them eventually in heaven, ultimately, perfectly to the Lord Jesus Christ. Perfectly sanctified, holy and blameless before Him in love for all eternity where there is no sin and there are no consequences of sin in that beautiful world to come. We all need that mercy, and we all need to know that we need that mercy. Jesus tells a parable of two men who went to the temple to worship God in Luke 18, verses 9 and following. First, you had the Pharisee. Perhaps he was one of the Pharisees who served as a religious leader. Perhaps he was just part of that strict religious sect that prided themselves in their own religious self-righteousness or whatever. But this Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. This is the kind of guy who, if there was a discipline case like we're about to announce at the end of the service, would be sitting there saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like that person. Let's none of us be that person, okay? Um, God forbid that we sit around thanking God that I'm not like this other person, because we are like, you see, by nature, we have the same sins that we have to deal with and that we have to confess and that we have to seek God's mercy for. And this particular Pharisee, he seems to have something of a knowledge of God's sovereignty. He's thanking God that he's not like other men, so he understands maybe God predestined him to be not like other men, and God sovereignly enabled him to be up on the pedestal. But, but you see, there's an issue here, um, which is really revealed when Jesus talks about the second individual. When he comes into the presence of God at the temple, we're told he stood afar off. He would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. If he had heard that other Pharisee um, praying, it's very likely he would have said, you know what, you're right. You probably are more godly than I am. You see, this is a humble man. He's afraid to even go stand near the other people at the temple. He feels unworthy even of that. He's standing afar off. He would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven 
So he's humble before God. He's frustrated with himself. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? He beats his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And in the Greek, it's the sinner. So he's not comparing himself to other people. He's not excusing himself by saying, well, I did this, but that person's involved and this person and they're at fault. No, God be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm the sinner. And we all need to come to God in that way because we all need that mercy. And Jesus said he went down to his house justified. Whatever he did, whatever sinful, wicked, deceptive things he did as a tax collector, the fact is he went down right with God, down to his house, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ who was to come and and die for his sins. Of course, this is a parable, but, but you get the point. We all need that mercy. And we're told that those who receive that mercy are those who confess their sin. Whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And you see the disjunction here between the two halves of the proverb. In the first half, you have the person who covers his sins and will not succeed. He'll be exposed. And that's the person that needs to repent or they'll be cut down and thrown into the fire, right? That's what John the Baptist was saying. That's the idea here. But, but, that doesn't have to be the case. There's mercy. There's mercy, infinite mercy, mercy that the Bible says is higher than the heavens, an infinite supply of mercy, the infinite value and merit of the death and shed blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Uh, But, it doesn't have to be this way. It wasn't this way for David. He eventually confessed his sin. It's not this way for any true believer because they confess their sins. Whoever confesses those sins, whoever refuses and ceases to conceal and hide and cover those sins will receive mercy. Again, referring to our confession of faith as a helpful uh, reference point for biblical truth. We're told in chapter 15, section 6, this is the chapter on repentance that we've been referring to. It says, as every man is bound to make private confession of his sins to God, praying for the pardon thereof, upon which and the forsaking of them, we'll get to that in a moment, he shall find mercy. And it cites Proverbs 28, verse 13. So it's saying, in order, I mean, this is, this is the text that our standards use to define our doctrine of repentance, that everyone has a duty to make private confession of his sins to God, praying for the pardon thereof, upon which the confession and forsaking of them he shall find mercy. And it goes on to speak of uh, scandal in the church and public and private confession, you know, in terms of the people that we've sinned against and so forth. But, but we need to confess our sins. Uh, again, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, we'll be forgiven of our sins. We'll be cleansed of all unrighteousness. Now, last Sabbath from Jeremiah chapter 8, we considered those who refuse to say, what have I done? Who refuse to acknowledge guilt, who refuse to acknowledge sins that they've committed, who refuse, as James 5.16 tells us, uh, refusing that duty to confess your sins one to another. 
And I think it's interesting that when it makes reference to confessing sin in our text, that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, the Septuagint, it translates it as he who blames himself. When there's conflict, when sin has been committed, when there's mashed potatoes and food flying back and forth in the cafeteria, and then you think later about, okay, what happened and did I do anything wrong? Are you the kind of person, not in terms of false humility, not in terms of the kind of thing where, where you're just trying to look for something to confess, um, but he who blames himself. Are you the person who owns up to their part in the conflict, their part in the sin that took place? He who blames himself. Uh, Do you blame yourself and confess those sins to other people in your family? Do you blame yourself and confess those sins to other people in your workplace? Do you blame yourself and confess those sins to other people in the church? That's the person, not just who's super spiritual on the pedestal. Let's elect them as, you know, elder in the church or presbyter of the year. That's just a Christian. That's just a Christian. Someone who blames themselves. Not in terms of some kind of woke cultural guilt trip, I understand. But, but really, you know what I'm saying. Examines and blames himself where he needs to confess that sin. But it's not just that. It's also whoever forsakes the sin. Now, I dwelt on this last Lord's Day, so I'm not going to dive in uh, fully to this again. Uh, usually when I quote this verse, and I quote it frequently, Proverbs 28:13, this is the point that I'm making, and, and many of you know that. This is a verse that really, from a confessional and biblical standpoint, really demonstrates that true repentance involves forsaking the sin, departing from the sin, leaving and, and, and abandoning that sin. Uh, I, we could quote verses about casting it away as an unclean thing, uh, saying, what have I to do anymore with idols? Not even so much as going near the house of the immoral woman. I mean, these, these are all these concepts, we're not going to dwell on it, but just recognize true repentance does not get cleaned up and dive back into the mud puddle. Uh, as, a, as a pig returning to the mire or as a dog returning to its vomit. We may fall, but again, every time we truly repent, we depart from it and we commit ourselves, I will never do it again. And if we do it again, we make the same commitment and by God's grace, we do it less and less frequently till we have substantial victory. That's how sanctification works. Now, it's important that we realize that we need confession and forsaking. And I think uh, the point is made that if we simply confess our sin, but we still live in it, that's not true repentance. But I want to stress this morning that even if we make certain outward adjustments, right, there can be people who are alcoholics, and for whatever self-serving reasons, they stop drinking. And then at that point, uh, they, would, they would say, yes, I've forsaken that alcoholic beverage and I no longer get drunk. But if you ask them, were you living in sin and, and did you sin against God to the point where you need the blood of Christ to wash away your sins, uh, they would say no. They don't confess it as a sin. So it's not enough to just tweak your life and make certain changes to satisfy other people outwardly and yet to not confess 
and blame yourself for the sin you've committed. Uh, The person who confesses without forsaking is still walking according to the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. But the person who forsakes sin in an outward way without confessing it as sin and humbling themselves in particular ways is guilty of the pride of life. So, understand, uh, forsaking it without confessing it is the pride of life. And uh, let me, uh, well, there's something I was going to say. I'm going to mention it in the Sabbath school uh, children for you. During the class time, if you're able to be here, I'm going to talk to you about how you can help your parents, especially young children, how you can help your parents as they live a life of repentance. But we'll talk about that during the Sabbath school. Let me just conclude with this. Whoever confesses and forsakes his sins will have mercy. Whoever. Now, in the Hebrew, it could simply be translated he who confesses and forsakes his sins will have mercy. The King James says whoever. The New King James says whoever. The Geneva Bible just says he. But the point is still there that it's anyone and everyone who confesses and forsakes their sins. And I think it's implied turns to God through Jesus Christ to receive mercy. Anyone and everyone who does that, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, there is infinite supply of mercy to cleanse, to forgive, to transform, to save you from your sins. God's mercies are new every morning. His compassions fail not. Anyone and everyone who confesses their sins and forsakes them, turns away from them to God through Jesus Christ and receives that mercy will be saved. And on Judgment Day, rather than being exposed, though there will be something of a fatherly evaluation and so forth, uh, but rather than primarily being exposed on Judgment Day, uh, you will shine like your heavenly Father. You will shine like your Father in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, Matthew 13. You will be clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. You'll be clothed in the righteous deeds of the saints as well. But it's only those. Uh, Whoever does it will have mercy, but only those who confess and forsake their sins will have mercy. Now, this is not merely the church saying this or the confession of faith. This is what God is saying. This is what has been bound in heaven without repentance, confessing and forsaking sin. There is no salvation. There is no uh, right to come to the Lord's table. We need to take this to heart. Thus saith the Lord. And the church in proclaiming this is simply echoing and binding on earth what has been bound in heaven. That if you're living, any of you, myself as well, if we're living in sin, refusing to admit it, forsake it, confess it, and and we continue in that pattern, that is over the long haul going to indicate something very, very troubling about our eternal destiny. And, And we need to think about that. Uh, But the church has a duty to use church discipline to address these things so so that what is out of joint and what is out of whack can be healed and fixed and dealt with so that God's people can repent and confess their sins and forsake them and walk in paths of new obedience. And so confession of faith 
chapter 30, verse 2, dealing with church censures. To these officers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed, by virtue whereof they have power respectively to retain and remit sins, to shut that kingdom against the impenitent, both by the word and censures, and to open it unto penitent sinners by the ministry of the gospel and by absolution from censures as occasion shall require. It's countercultural, it's not normal in the church today. Uh, because we've strayed from this mark of the true church, which is biblical church discipline. But the elders of the church have keys to open the way for everyone, anyone, whoever repents and believes in Christ. They will have mercy. But also to use these keys to shut the door to the tokens of God's salvation at the Lord's Supper, to shut the door uh, at times even of church membership, to those who will not repent in that way. It's a solemn thing. As I said, it's, it's in itself not a particularly pleasant thing. But Jesus says we have a duty to do it and to bind on earth what He has already bound in heaven and revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. Now, what needs to, what, what needs to be said? We need to be motivated by the mercy of God. This text is... is not actually focusing on God's eternal wrath so much as it is saying, turn from your sin and receive mercy. Look to the mercy of God. Look to the Father's house where there is bread enough and to spare. What is it that dragged the prodigal son out of the pigsty? It was a thought that God would forgive his sins, if you will, that his father would receive him back, even if it was only as a servant. He was like that penitent tax collector, almost dwelling afar off, underestimating uh, the, the, the love and the mercy of God. And yet, humbling himself, he was drawn to the goodness and loving kindness of his heavenly Father. He wanted to come back because he knew he would be received. He knew that if he confessed and forsook his sins, that he would receive mercy from his Father. Let that draw us and drive us back to the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray, we beg, we ask, we plead that Your saving mercy in Jesus Christ, even the One who was lifted up on the cross, that He would draw us to Himself, draw us out of our sin, draw us to confess it, draw us to forsake it, and to find everlasting happiness and peace, set free by the one who is the truth. We ask in his name. Amen.